All right, you can grab a seat. Kids, you are dismissed off to class. Enjoy. The rest of you, I want you to take this piece of paper. If you are sitting on it, uh, you can pull it out from underneath you. Um, This paper is here to serve a couple of reminders. One is, um, at a doctor's office, you often go and you sit on paper, and it kind of crinkles, and it's kind of weird, and all of that. Um, That serves to help our illustration here this morning. Um, What I want you to do with this piece of paper is this. I want you to take the pen sitting in front of you, and I want you to write down some current pain or suffering, okay? Some current pain or suffering that you're experiencing. Take a moment, do that right now, and um, I'm going to give you about 15 seconds, because I think that finding some pain or suffering won't be that hard for you to think up. So write it down. And then just stick your paper up in the air when you have it written down so I can see how we're doing. Okay. A couple of you. Keep going. Keep going. Write it down. You don't need a novel. Just a word. Okay. All right. Time's up. Here's what I want you to do with this piece of paper. I want you to crinkle it up like this. And I want you to throw it at someone. Okay? Take that paper and throw it at someone right now. There you go. There you go. All right. <laughs> I like in the back, just picking your spot. That was good. Okay. <laughs> All right, so what just happened? Let's, let's, talk, about, let's talk about what just happened. Um, all of us have pain and suffering, right? And we all deal with it in some way. Um, many, many times people end up taking their pain and throwing it at someone else, right? Some of you, by the way, found a lot of joy in throwing that paper at someone. Um, here's what's interesting also. Uh, some of you, I watched you, some of you took careful aim. I took my pain. I just immediately chucked it at my son, right? That was a good shot, by the way. You had to duck. Um, some of you took very careful aim and you threw it. Some of you threw it maybe at someone but you hit someone else, maybe a stranger, right? Think about this. Sometimes we take our pain, we throw it at someone else, we aim it at someone else. We actually hit other people with it. I think there were some multiple throws. I think some of you got hit with someone and said, oh yeah, and you threw it back at someone else. Man, this is how suffering and pain is often dealt with. Here's what's interesting. Maybe for a split second, you felt better. But really, it doesn't help. Whatever's written on that piece of paper, it doesn't help. Look at the floor around you. We just made a mess of things. A lot of times we take our pain and our suffering, we make a mess of things. Maybe we feel better for a split second. It did not take away whatever's written on that paper. Now, we won't do this, but what if you all gathered all these papers and laid it at my feet, brought it to me? Maybe the expectation is, here, Dave, you take my pain and suffering. You're the pastor. What's that going to do to me? It will crush me. I will quit tomorrow morning at being your pastor, right? Because I can't bear that burden. I would not last if that that came to me. Man, this is such a fitting metaphor for uh, kind of what what goes on with our pain and our suffering. Let me toss up a couple of, um, of questions. Maybe these are some things that are currently going on in your life right now. Does it have to hurt so much? How can this happen to me? Where are you, God? And then just the all-inclusive why. 
These and many other less polite versions of these questions show up on screens, show up in our hearts, show up in our journals, show up in our prayers, show up in our screens, shows up in our art. Pain and suffering is no respecter of age, of skin color, of political leanings, or earnings. It doesn't matter if you're religious or irreligious. Suffering and pain hits us all. It's universal. And when suffering hits, it hits hard. Here's some interesting news. If you're not currently in pain and suffering, you will be. Well, that's depressing, Dave. (laughs) It's life. It's reality. If you are not in pain and suffering right now, you will be. I'm starting this way, quite simply, how to trust that God is right. Can I know God is right when there's all this wrong all around me? I'm starting this way because our text takes us right into suffering and what to do about it, how to endure it. Remember last week, Paul is inviting Timothy to share in suffering. Hey, Timothy, come share in suffering. Today, he's going to talk about how to endure confidently. How to endure suffering confidently. What is he suffering for? By the way, this this is kind of predictable that he would cover this topic. Remember, he's writing this from death row. What is his crime? Pleasing God. The crime of Paul, why he is in prison right now, is because he's living the life God called him to live. And he decided to be unashamed of Jesus rather than take the comfort of being free of his chains. Uh, This week in our community group questions, I know some of our community groups are taking a break for the summer. I'd still encourage you to engage with these. But one of the things in there is this question, do you have a good theology of suffering? Do you have a good theology of suffering? That's what we're going to kind of dive into just for a couple of minutes. And by the way, by good, I don't mean... Um, is it working for you? Does it make you feel better? I think there's a lot of things that might be working for people short-term and makes them feel better short-term that is a horrible theology of suffering. When I say, do you have a good theology of suffering? Here's what I mean. Does it align with truth? Does it align with what's real? That's what I'm asking. Let me kind of explore a little bit. I've been reading this book called uh, Walking with God through pain and suffering. Just the title alone is, is amazing. Walking with God through pain and suffering. It's by Timothy Keller. I'm going to quote from it later. I'm going to put it on screen so you'll kind of get a sense of what it is. I actually just began reading this book, not in preparation for this sermon, but as I'm getting to this part of the text, I'm like, wow, this thing nails some of what we're talking about. He does some really good research on this, but let me just show you some things. What we do in our suffering actually communicates what we think about suffering. Okay? So there are some people that when suffering comes on, they need to do better or be better. When pain and suffering hits, I need to do better or I need to be better. You know who these people are. Some of you might be here. Your propensity is to dig in and get to work. Stuff is wrong. It's got to be fixed. So either sort of, and by the way, the the mindset I'm thinking that attaches to this is either to work your way out of the pain or somehow balance the pain that's coming on you by good. Okay, that's one. Here's another thing people do. 
People right now are actively trying to detach from their pain. That is, go find your happy place and live there because pain isn't even real. Okay, that's a, that's a way to deal with our pain. Number three is to stand firm with no complaint or need of explanation, right? It's suck it up buttercup, right? That's the, that's the message. Think about the home that you were raised in or the home that you're currently raising children in. What are some messages when the hard comes? How do you deal with it? How is it talked about? What we're looking at this morning is, is to say, what does God say about that? How should we think about it? What should we do with it? Should we write it down and throw our problems at someone else? Maybe there's a better way. Now, each of these describes sort of three major responses to suffering. A big idea this morning is this, that what we think about how the world works is what we'll do in response to suffering. The way we think the world is wired and works will directly impact what we do when pain and suffering come to us, okay? So we're talking about worldview. Every culture or worldview has attempted to give explanation to what is wrong. Now, here's what's not on our screen so far. What's not on our screen is what I'm going to call today Western modern civilization, okay? So sort of Western thinking in contemporary modern times. Western... Modern Western civilization is actually particularly inept at this. I read a book. I've actually read it a couple of times, maybe three times. It's called The Gift of Pain by Dr. Paul Brand. I've referenced it before in sermons. He's a missionary who went and worked with lepers most of his life. Most of his life has been spent working in leper colonies. And what, and what the book The Gift of Pain is all about is that what do lepers suffer from not being able to experience pain? So he describes horrific things of a person would go to sleep in their cot in very rural, poor India and wake up with no thumb. Come to find out rats were gnawing on their thumb all night and they had no pain sensors to pull it away or say, bad rat, shoot. Pain is a gift. He calls it pain, the gift nobody wants. What he says is that coming back to America, Americans are particularly inept and shocked at dealing with pain. And no one seems to think of it as a gift here. Because Western thought is that the universe is only materialistic or natural versus matter plus spirit, that leaves absolutely no room for any meaning or purpose to be attached to anything wrong that goes on in this universe. Does that make sense? If, if it's only naturalistic and materialistic, there's no spirit and matter, then there can be, if you're a good Western secular humanist, you cannot allow for meaning and purpose to accompany pain. So it leaves you in a really difficult spot. So what do you do with pain? Well, the only explanation is that it's chance misfortune. You cannot attach meaning or purpose to pain. So, what do Westerns do with it? Here's how I would term it. Educate, or medicate, or, or, medicate or litigate. Right? Get smarter, get more information to fix it. Medicate, to sort of numb the pain or take away the sensations. Right? Don't necessarily change your lifestyle, but change the feelings. Or litigate, 
It's got to be someone's fault. Someone's to blame. I'm taking them to court. The response of better knowledge or better feeling or blame somewhere um, is what I would say many moderns in, West, in the West attempt to do to fix all the pain and suffering, um, but it, it always is doomed to fail. These three methods of dealing with pain and suffering are always doomed to fail. What happens is this. Sufferers in, our, uh, in, in the United States are basically placed in the hands of experts, most of the time apart from God. Think about what it is to be a sufferer who's placed in the hands of an expert, right? You go to a doctor. That's not helping. You go get a second opinion, right? You go to a specialist. You keep going the medical route. Or you go to a psychiatrist. Uh, or you go to... Um, Whatever, these these different experts. But let me just tell you that sufferers in the hands of experts apart from God leads to great confusion. Let me give you three reasons why putting sufferers in the hands of experts leads to massive widespread confusion. Okay, Think about this. Number one, each expert is trained to see problems and suffering through their lens of expertise. Every expert you go to is trained to look at suffering and pain through their lens of expertise. The, the um, saying goes like this. If you're an expert in hammers, every problem looks like a nail, right? So you go around with your hammer, and you're just, da 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 you're There's a roofer that laughed hardest at that. He's like, yeah, I say that all the time. Um, that's the idea of, of specialized reductionist thinking, that it must be this. This is my field of expertise. This is what it must be. Number two of why it causes such confusion is this. Each field of expertise, each area of study, differs widely in their worldview, differs widely in their assumptions about what is working. So, for instance, is it biochemistry? Is it faulty thinking? Is it economic inequality? Is it a bad upbringing? Is it a hidden trauma from the past? We are complex beings. And to have an expert that says this is what it is and attaches this as the, the, the cause of it is simplistic. And then thirdly, Again, these are reasons why handing sufferers to experts, whether they're educators or, um, or, or in, in medicine, the third reason why it causes mass confusion is this. By definition, what is wrong with you and how do we make it right is a value judgment between good and evil, right and wrong. Here's what's interesting. Our higher learning institutions are pumping out experts in the medical and educational field that have no such basis for making these kinds of statements. When absolute truth and sort of a relativistic view of thinking, well, that's true for you. That's right for you, but not for me. Then what happens is our experts are actually, by definition, they are unable to make value judgments. That is evil. That is beautiful. Does that make sense? I'm jumping right into the deep end here a little bit. Um, We're going to unpack this with Scripture in a second. Let me say this, that Christianity is altogether different. Now, what's interesting is there's actually threads from everything that I've just said. There are little threads of truth. This is part of the devious nature of our great enemy is he takes partial truths and partial lies and mixes them together. Christianity is fundamentally different, and here's how. Unlike fatalism, which teaches us to sort of suck it up and endure with honor, 
Suffering is, in fact, overwhelming. Christianity teaches us. It doesn't just permit us. It encourages us to voice our complaint, to ask questions, to say, I'm in way over my head. Unlike Buddhism, which teaches that pain is an illusion, Christianity says that, no, pain is, in fact, quite real. Unlike karma, which teaches that all pain sort of balances out with good. So if you cause this pain, do some good, it'll sort of erase that. Unlike karma, um, suffering is often unjust and unfair. The Bible's crystal clear about that. And unlike what I'll call secularism here, which teaches that pain is meaningless, Christianity says, no, suffering actually is purposeful and meaningful if we invite God into it. Let me give you this one quote, and then we'll uh, move on to the text and kind of why I'm getting this. This is from this book I referenced. He says, while other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of, world's, of, the, of this world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. Complete reversal of what's going on in pain and suffering. Here's my central truth. Here's the big idea this morning, is that what we think about suffering is what we'll do in our suffering. The way that we think, what we think is going on with suffering and pain is going to dictate how we respond in suffering and pain. The cross forever stands as an unmistakable reality of this. Let me put a filter through uh, these these. Um, Right here, that kind of came up. So think about uh, pain is overwhelming. The cross. What did Jesus say from the cross? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's in anguish. He's sweating block drops of blood. How about suffering? Is it real? Absolutely. The Bibles take great pains to show he actually physically died. Blood and water came out when he was pierced. He was in the grave three days. He did not swoon or faint or sort of uh, go into some weird state. Is, Is pain and suffering unfair? Yes. Jesus was murdered unjustly. He was murdered on trumped up charges because they couldn't find anything to bring against him. And is pain meaningful? Absolutely. The death of Jesus Christ forever kills the power of the grave. And that's imputed, that's gifted to all who would put their trust in him. Christianity speaks into all these different sort of worldviews of pain. And here's what's interesting. I had an almost hour conversation yesterday with a person in our church who's going through excruciating pain. I couldn't help singing these first few songs this morning with her in mind. She has been, she's an example to me of how I want to face the huge tests and trials of life that come. I want you to know on any given Sunday, whether they're here watching uh, online, sitting outside, uh, there are people in your church family who are enduring amazing amounts of suffering and pain. There's a graciousness. I complimented Lucas last week. I said, man, I loved when he said, how many of you feel like worshiping? And we're like, whoop, whoop. And he goes, well, Some of you aren't. Some of you don't feel like that. It's a choice. 
And we sang the song, Yes, I Will. Yes, I Will Praise Your Name, even in the midst of the storm. I said, what a welcome mat that is to people who are absolutely in excruciating pain. They know there's a place for lament. They know there's a place of safety where they can come to church, be with God's people, even if they're not in the rah-rah mode of, of, of God in that moment. I'll tell you what people in pain don't want. They don't want a philosophical discussion on pain, right? That's actually kind of cruel, <laughs> Um, so before we move on and talk more philosophically about pain and suffering, let me offer a couple of helps. These are some helps that, um, that I would just offer to you. Um, first of all, read. If you're not a reader, listen. Um, if you're not a listener, I don't know what to tell you. Um, what should you read? First and foremost, always the Bible. Read. Let this drive you to the scriptures. Some of my deepest, most profound times of being in the scriptures have been um, called forth in me from the seasons of intense pain or confusion I was in. Where should you start? Man, go look at the book of Psalms. The Psalms, 150 Psalms that sit right dead center of our Bible cover the whole span of life. From the highs, the lows, the in-betweens. Read the book of Job. There's a whole book called Lamentations. To lament is to weep and mourn over your pain and sin. Go read Lamentations. How about reading the life of Jesus? You feel sorry for yourself? You feel mystified in your pain? Why do people hate me? Just go read a gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the story of Jesus. They're the biography of Jesus Christ. Just walk through those. How about reading Revelation to see how it all ends? That's a really hopeful thing to do. In the midst of your pain, yeah, you could start in Job, but end of Job is pretty powerful. End of the book of the, uh, of the whole book is really powerful. Go read Revelation. How about reading 2 Timothy? This is written by a guy on death row, right? Just take the letter and go start, start to finish. Read your Bibles. Now, God has also gifted us with brothers and sisters who are gifted at writing and can disciple us in some really painful times. Uh, a friend recently asked me, hey, what are some books that I can read? I'm going through this struggle. And I gave this list, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. That's the book I'm currently reading right now by Timothy Keller. Excellent book so far. I already referenced Pain, the Gift That Nobody Wants by Dr. Paul Brand. A book called Where is God When It Hurts by Philip Yancey. Read this book a few years ago, When God Breaks Your Heart, a pastor who got terminally ill and sort of his journey through that. Anything by Johnny Erickson Tata. I, I have one book up here, A Place of Healing. She's a prolific writer. She writes from a place of sort of a lifelong, um, what people would look on the outside as a sufferer. She's a rejoicer and an overcomer is what I would call her. And finally, my favorite title by David Crowder. We do a lot of his worship songs, but everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Just an amazing book title right there. That's a really good book, quirky, fun um, we also have a sermon series. Uh, one of the things that's beautiful about just all the recording we get to do now is these all live online. So if you go to nbcsj.org uh, backslash sermons, you'll come up to this kind of a page. This is a, a sermon series called Turbulence. Some of you were here for that. Turbulence was a series where we took six weeks and we covered the topics that you'd rather keep out of polite dinner conversation, right? Topics that are hard to face, but if you're in the middle of them, you're like a starving person for a meal. You're hungry for God's truth. God, what do you speak into brokenness, loneliness, pain, failure, sorrow? What about when I'm wronged? God speaks into all that. So go back and use these sermon series as a means of 
being fed and feeding yourself. You don't even need to write any of this down. If you have internet access, you can go find this. Take a screenshot if you want. Let me move on. Here's the central idea today, the central truth. What you think of suffering determines what you do in suffering. Okay? 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 7. Follow along as I read. He writes, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as I preached, as, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. What you think of suffering will determine what you do in suffering. To kind of go off of our live well theme, I would say this. um, Think well to live well. Think well to live well. This has shown up previously in this letter already. So I have this broken up into two ways. I'm going to spend most of my time with this idea. How do we think like Paul? Paul is enduring his suffering well. We're going to see that. How do we think like Paul? He gives us an action item here in verse 7. Look at verse 7. It says, think over what I say. What's the action item for us? Think. And then he gives this second part, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. 2 Timothy 2.7 has become a powerful tool in my life as I keep coming back and reflecting on this. What am I to do? I'm to think. What is God going to do? He's going to give. What am I to do? I'm to think over these things. What's he going to do? He's going to provide the understanding. So there's a part of it that I have to trust that. Think and trust. God's part, our part. This is the whole idea of divine partnership. Let me say this really bluntly from the top. God does not need your help. Don't be offended at that. (gasps) Let it be a giant sigh of relief. It's the ultimate in human pride to be offended that God doesn't need our help. Of course he doesn't. Here's what's really profound. He wants our help. He invites us into partnership. Do you see the divine partnership in chapter 7? I mean, in in verse 7? Think over what I say. The Lord will give you understanding. Who is it that wrote the Bible? What do you think? Is it God? You're like, I'm pretty sure God wrote it. Is it people? People? All right, here we go. The murmuring's going on. Let me throw some paper at someone. All right. (laughs) Is it God? Is it people? Yes. Right? Now, there's a lot to unpack here, but that's a beautiful picture of the divine partnership. Think about this. All of life is a divine partnership. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise. What's that? Divine partnership. Who wrote the Bible? God and people. Wait, what? How does that work? The scriptures say this, that people were the instruments, the human instruments that God used 
But he didn't dictate to them. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they wrote exactly what God wanted to do. Couldn't God have physically written the Bible? Hey, Jesus, while you're down there, write the New Testament. Could have done it that way, right? He chose not to. How many books of the Bible did Jesus write? Say zero. Yeah, none. But in a way, how many? 66. Right? Yeah. You're like, my brain hurts too much for this. Get me coffee. Um, This is the divine partnership, though. It really is. And I don't mess too much with where where does my part end and and God's part begin. You know what? I'm going to be faithful to my part and, and leave God's part for him. I am called to think over these things. I'm called to apply myself. I'm, a, I'm called to love the Lord my God with all my mind. And I'm completely and utterly dependent on him. The mind of a person can never understand spiritual things. No matter how smart I get, no matter how many books I read, how many conferences I attend or teach, ever, spiritual things are discerned by spiritual means. And that's a gift of God. God is using human agents, his people, not just to write the scriptures, but to do all of life. This is an amazing passage, Mark 16, 20. It's in your notes, just look it up later. But this is after uh, Jesus says, go and make disciples. It says, Mark 16, 20, and they went out and preached everywhere. Who's that? That's the disciples. Does God do the preaching? No. Does Jesus? No. He's going away. Who does the preaching? Uh, Preachers? Yes, preachers, people. And they went out and preached everywhere. Listen to this. While the Lord worked with them. (laughs) That's a fantastic sentence. Hey, go and make disciples of the entire world. How do you make a disciple? You take a spiritually dead person and you bring them to spiritual life. Uh, Who can do that but God alone? Exactly. Go, preach. All right. And the Lord worked with them. What a great little sentence. They went and preached while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Man, I hope tomorrow morning, I hope tomorrow morning you wake up and you say, God, I want to be your kingdom man, your kingdom woman. I'm going to go and do what you've called me to do and you're going to work with me. Who does the heavy lifting in a divine partnership? God, always. He does lifting you don't even know is going on. He does protecting you don't even have any clue is going on. Once in a while, we get glimpses. I had someone tell me this week, man, I was talking away, I was sharing with this person, and it's like, the, it's like God brought to mind something that I wasn't even really thinking about. And I'm like, isn't that cool? That's an amazing thing. You've availed yourself by being a preacher, by opening your mouth, and the Lord worked with you. There are conversations I hope you have sometimes And you just go, wow, that was not an incredible gospel presentation. I think I sort of stammered my way through it. But they were ready to receive the good news. They've given their life to Jesus Christ. Wow. I'm preaching while the Lord works with us. That's just such an incredible thing. Think over what I say. The Lord will give you insights. Look to the Lord to give you the insights. So you can't do what only God can do. And catch this. He won't do what he's commanded you to do. Go and plant seeds, farmer. Tend to the soil, farmer. Pull the weeds, farmer. Stay out of the way of the sunlight, farmer. Get up early. Stay up late. Do it in season and out of season. I'm going to cause the growth. 
The former can't possibly do what God only can do, and God won't do. He chooses not to do what he tells the farmer to do. This is the Christian walk. This is the Christian life. Discipleship like Jesus is training to think, uh, training people to think for themselves, but not by themselves. One of the things you do as a parent, as you try to train up your children, is you try to train them up to make and own a decision. Sometimes people come to pastors and other people and say, hey, should I do this or should I do that? Should I marry this girl or not? Should I go to this college or that college? Discipleship like Jesus is training people to think for themselves, not by themselves. By themselves is just you never ask for wisdom. You never have a community of people. You never come with, with questions for the community. We had a guy named Michael come, uh, and he came to, to men's group, and he said, Hey, I'm, I've got my, my, my first girlfriend, and I wanted your guys' input. I've never had a girlfriend before. And he just sought some wisdom. It was really wise of him. And he just sort of sought the input of other men that he respected and sought their input. That's not thinking by yourself. Right? That's thinking in community. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the scriptures. We have a church family. So I'll tell you as a pastor, I won't tell you what to think, but I will tell you in the name of the Lord, I will command you, show up and think. Show up and think. Think this over. You want three steps to a happy marriage? Nonsense. That's foolishness. I get that we need bite-sized things, but that's clickbait. Right? That's not even real. Three steps to righteousness. I'll give you one. Trust in Jesus and then go from there, right? Let me say this before moving on. Think over what I say. Church, I want to challenge you, if you're not doing it already, to discipline yourself to digest what you are learning. Discipline yourself to digest what you are learning. I hope that on Sunday mornings, as you sit under biblical teaching, you are learning things. But every single day that you live, you are learning things. You're having interactions with people. You're being bombarded by messages. Your powers of discernment to train yourself on what is good, what is evil. What should I ingest? What should I spew out and never touch again? Those powers are, are used as, are, are developed as they're exercised. So part of, I, I, was, I was never a journaler. That was like torture to me. Sit down and journal. <sighs> We play sports, please, instead. I journal a ton now. I love how Bob Goff puts it. There's insights that fly away like butterflies. How are you capturing the, the little butterflies? You have insights in this room, and you go, oh, man, that's good. I should do something about that. Just flies away. You go through a conversation. You go through a hard day. You go through an amazing day. Man, journal what's going on. Invite God into the conversation. Sit at the end of your day and just reflect by the way, community questions are aimed at getting specific. If you keep things vague, it's sort of going to leave you always in the safe zone. It's always going to leave you in sort of the same place. Specific application of the Bible to specific life situations is where you grow. In fact, I think vague can lead to deceiving yourself, like James 1.22 talks about. You look at the word intently, right? Totally forget what it says when you walk away because you were vague. I need to do better. What does that mean? What are you talking about? I feel really bad. I shouldn't do things, bad things anymore. That's vague. 
So it leads to deceiving yourself or it leads to pride. Knowledge puffs up. Sometimes just the more and more and more and more we know, but we never get specific and apply it, leads to just arrogance. So think over what I say. This is the first filter and the most important thought to keep coming back to. Look at verse 8. It's not on the screen. It's in your Bible. It says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Dave, what should I think over? What things should I think over? Think over verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David. To think like Paul is to remember like Paul. In this one chapter, we're going to be called to think over what I say, to remember something, and then he's going to tell Paul, uh, Timothy later on, remind them of these things. What it's saying is that repetition and deep thinking are crucial to a life that's lived well. Let me repeat that because it's biblical. It means that repetition and deep thinking are crucial to a life lived well. I need reminding because I forget. I bet you do too. Don't you forget things? Of course you do. The truth is that Jesus Christ risen from the dead, this one concept, that filter changes everything. It actually puts everything else into focus. Paul's in the midst of suffering unjustly. He's chained like a criminal, he says. He's going to need this kind of filter. So remembering Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Let's go back to last week where he talked about a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer for a second. As a soldier, soldiers aren't just battling the dark spiritual forces, but soldiers are battling their their own dark forces. What does it have to do with applying this overlay, this filter? Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Well, it helps us remember Jesus has already defeated the foe. That means soldier, share in suffering as a good soldier. You're fighting from victory, not for victory. How about the athlete? Athletes aren't only competing with fatigue, but athletes are competing with their own inner temptation to cheat. How does applying the the remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, how does that apply? Well, Jesus earned your righteousness. Compete from that truth. How about the hardworking farmer? The fall has made the farmer toil not just with nature, but with human nature. Because of the curse, the ground is going to be hard to work. That's why you have to be a hardworking farmer. But also, the human nature is what you struggle with. What is the remembering Jesus Christ risen from the dead applied to the farmer? That with a word, Jesus calms human nature and Jesus calms nature. The cross forever stands as an unmistakable reminder that, it is, that, that there is purpose in your pain. Let me say it again. The cross forever stands as a reminder that there is purpose in your pain. Let me show you two pieces of uh, sound doctrine that Paul gives us in these verses. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Okay? Let me take you to, uh, these are the catechism questions I've referenced before. These are some of the ones that we've been reviewing of late. 
um, I was on a golf course with Andres and Lucas, and probably because I needed forgiveness and grace of Jesus and take my mind off of my horrific golf game, I just pulled this out of my phone, and while I'm walking to my ball, instead of muttering swear words, I'm muttering the creed. I'm just looking at truth, saying, why do I need a redeemer? That's right, because my golf game stinks, right? This is like reviewable, portable truth. What sort of redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? Answer, one who is truly human and also truly God. Look at our text today. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, that's divine. Offspring of David, that's human. Son of God, son of man. Why is that important? Because of the whole of the Old Testament. The Messiah will be a truly God, truly man. Next one, why must the redeemer be truly human? That in human nature... He might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin. Christ laid aside his deity to come as a human being so that he could be our substitute. This little tiny nugget in verse 8, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, divine, offspring of David, human, is gold. So that's why he must be truly man. How about why must the Redeemer be truly God? That because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. So this is why we should keep coming back to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Why is that important? Because of these things. He's our substitute. He died in our place. He died so that we don't have to. Finally, why was it necessary for Christ the Redeemer to die? Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and bring us back to God. Church, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. What a powerful opening morning prayer tomorrow. Today, God, I remember you risen from the dead. We don't have icons of Jesus on the cross in our church or around our house or around my neck. Because he's not there. He's risen. All right. What Paul thinks of suffering is what he does in suffering. So if that's thinking like him, how do we endure like Paul? Verse 9 says this, For which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Catch this. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I've never spent time in the big house, but I imagine sitting in a jail cell with my crime being I'm living a life to please God is awfully lonely. It's probably doubt inducing. I'm not sure how many times Paul prayed for his circumstances to change, but I'll tell you this, his circumstances don't change in the few hundred hours that he has left of his life. Nero's going to take his head. That's what's going to happen. We know that because we know the end of the story. Paul's pretty open in this letter about the disappointment he feels in people deserting him. Remember, we looked at this a few weeks ago. Everyone deserted me. In a few verses in the future, he's going to name people saying, these people uh, went after the world. This other person did great harm. Stay away from that person. He's pretty open about the difficulty of ministry. He's not alone, though. Think about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the cousin, cousin of Jesus. 
right? Jesus said this about John the Baptist. There's no one greater than John the Baptist. And yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. What did John the Baptist do? He was sort of a forerunner calling out. He was like Paul Revere, right? Running through the streets saying, hey, the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. In Luke chapter 7, Eli and I are reading it this week. I said, thanks, Eli. We just reading the scriptures together helped reinforce the sermon this week. We're reading through Luke 7 this week. And he's in prison. He sends messengers to Jesus with this message. Hey, are you the Messiah, Jesus? Or am I supposed to be looking for someone else? John, the Baptist. John, the cousin of Jesus. He spent a lifetime devoting himself to his Lord and Savior, of whom he said, I'm not even worthy to untie this guy's sandals. I'm nothing. I must decrease so that he can increase. The dark jail cell is doubt-inducing. Here's what's fascinating. Jesus does not say, wait, what? My cousin's in jail? Let's get him out of there. Did John pray to get removed from jail? I would. I don't know, but I would. What's going to happen to John's head? Same as Paul's head. It's going to be detached from his body for a wicked ruler named Herod. Very shortly. He never gets out of prison. What is Jesus' answer? Anyone remember? That's it. You go back. Jesus tells the messengers of John the Baptist. You go back to John the Baptist. Tell him what's going on. The blind are being given sight. The deaf are able to hear. The chained are unbound. What he does is he sends him back with a message. Persevere. Endure. Your suffering is not meaningless, John. You know what John does? He perseveres to the end. He's not recorded as an apostate, as one who gave up and bailed on the whole thing at the end. He endured, just like Paul. Paul Paul endures the unjust suffering for other people, specifically Christians, currently and yet to come. He says the elect. Here's the mind-blowing thing. What if you're suffering, whatever's written on this paper right now, what if you're suffering could actually be gifted to help someone else? What's on the lips and heart and mind and pen of Paul in the midst of his suffering, helping other people grow up in Christ? You know what's powerful? Part of why I say read anything from Johnny Erickson Tata is because from a place of personal experience, she lends all of this authority to what she's writing about. It'd be easy enough for me to write at a cute little coffee shop all about suffering. It's different when you're on death row. This is why my conversation yesterday was so incredibly uplifting. The suffering of another church member was lifting my faith. I said to this person, no one knows what they will be like when they have to endure the test. But I said to this person, I hope I endure and have the the presence of mind to remember these eternal truths like you do. So instead of taking your pain and chucking it at someone, right, your pain can actually be a gift to help other people grow up in their faith in Christ. Band, I want you to come on up. I 
I want to give you the amazingly good news that God can be trusted as absolutely, perfectly, eternally right today. And not only can you trust God that he's right in the midst of all that is wrong in the world, all that is wrong in your world, but you can actually know it. You can know that suffering produces glorious things because of the cross. I'll tell you why people do these things in suffering. Think about a secular humanist that believes that everything is only material and natural. That means you are all alone on this planet. Your pain and your suffering has no meaning. It's totally up to you. The behaviors that I see of people who are lashing out in different ways looks exactly like people who think about suffering in those kinds of ways. Here's the amazing message. God really loves you. And secondly, you are not alone. God Almighty from His throne promises those things. We're going to sing those into our life right now. God, thank you for your word. I pray that you would impress it and imprint it and challenge the faulty lies that might be believed in our lives and hearts right now. God, would you go into those deep, dark, secret, painful places and bring your light, bring your healing, bring your freedom, bring your truth. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.